Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello and welcome back to our second day of 2020 Blogs Roundup podcast. Today we have six blogs from Dr Anna Volkmer, Dr Clarissa Glebel, Dr Emily Oliver, and Morgan Daniel, and yours truly. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher, and it's my pleasure to be hosting today. Our first blog comes from Morgan Daniel. You'll recall from yesterday, Morgan is somebody we're following over the course of the year as she studies for her MSc in Neuroscience at University College London, having recently moved from Glasgow University, where she completed her undergraduate degree in psychology. Today, Morgan's going to be discussing her MSc journey so far. My name's Morgan. I'm a postgraduate student at University College London, and I'll be documenting my experience of studying MSc Dementia, Causes, Treatments and Research, Neuroscience for a Dementia Researcher. I'm originally from Loch Lomond, less than one hour outside of Glasgow in Scotland. I studied my Bachelor of Science in Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Glasgow, so moving to a city as large and populated as London will come as a huge change. I suppose I've always known that I wanted to become a scientist, and I actually identified biology as my future field at a very young age. I excelled in biology in school and was always particularly keen on neuroscience, but dementia and in particular Alzheimer's disease were my clear passion from the beginning of my scientific education. Like many, I've witnessed the effects of dementia firsthand. The devastating effect that dementia can have upon a patient and their loved ones inspired me to work towards a career in dementia research. I became fascinated by the biological cause of dementia and the physical manifestations of the disease, and I was shocked by the lack of support available for research into this illness. I therefore decided that I wanted to contribute in some way to bettering the lives of those affected by dementia. It's this focus on dementia research that brought me to UCL. Across the world, UCL is renowned for providing such a high standard of neuroscience research and is also home to the first ever neurological hospital, the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, providing excellent research and clinical-based education. Attached is a picture that my mum took, the classic first day at school photos when we first arrived. Having the opportunity to study at Queen's Square, the Institute of Neurology, will provide me with excellent networking opportunities and will hopefully be the immersive research environment that I felt I would need during my postgraduate education. Having found this course in my second year of undergraduate study, I quickly realised that it was the only one of its kind in the UK. The content is tailored to my exact interests and I can't wait to begin my first modules. I'm looking forward to working with and getting to know my peers while socially distanced for the time being. And I hope to make the most out of my time at UCL. It's such a diverse and varied institution, with students and staff from across the globe contributing to its culture, and I will try my best to get as involved as I possibly can. While moving to London and starting a new institution is extremely daunting, I can't wait to settle in and begin to experience all that London has to offer, only this time as a local rather than a tourist. Scotland will always be my home, and as they say, you can take the girl out of Glasgow, but you can't take Glasgow out of the girl. That being said, I'm so ready for this new chapter in my life. Having worked so hard to reach this initial stage in my research career, I'm not going to let a global pandemic ruin the excitement. Until next time, Morgan. Morgan writes blogs for us every month, sharing information on her studies 
and how she's getting along while she studies for her MSc at UCL. Visit our website, dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. Click on the link on the top of the homepage to register and receive our Friday bulletins to make sure you never miss an instalment. The next blog was written by me on the 21st of September to discuss World Alzheimer's Day. Today is World Alzheimer's Day and I have a message for dementia researchers. World Alzheimer's Month is the international campaign created and led by Alzheimer's Disease International, or ADI for short. Every September, it works to raise awareness and challenge the stigma that surrounds dementia. As researchers, your discoveries are making a difference in every corner of science. And today on World Alzheimer's Day, on behalf of NIHR Dementia Researcher and all the people who benefit from your work, I want to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for making dementia the focus of your work. Thank you for all those years of studying. Thank you for those sleepless nights, those lost weekends. Thank you for caring and fighting through it, uh, highs and lows. You're amazing. And while World Alzheimer's Month is about raising awareness and challenging stigma, I think it should also be a moment to pause and reflect and to give thanks to everyone involved in beating dementia and particularly all of you. Two out of every three people globally believe there is little or no understanding of dementia in their countries, even here in the UK. There is still so much to do. Research is making a difference and the impact of World Alzheimer's Month is growing, but the stigmatization and misinformation that surrounds dementia remains a global problem that requires global action. Even in 2020, when there are so many other challenges going on across the world, most of which affect families with dementia even more than others. This year, Alzheimer's Disease International's annual report is entitled Design, Dignity, Dementia. Dementia-related design and the built environment. It's released today and it looks at design progress to date, best practice, pioneers and innovators across multiple environments, including in people's homes and domestic settings, day and residential care, hospitals and public buildings and spaces. The report provides a global perspective of dementia and it also looks to benchmark against progress made in the physical disabilities movement and demands the same progress is now made in design solutions for people living with dementia, calling for responses to be included in national government's response to dementia, including in their national plans. Many of you work in this field and so I just want everybody, whatever your field, to give yourself a high five. Keep going, doing what you do. Take a look at the 2022 report and let's fight that stigma. And remember that despite setbacks, this is a journey that's well worth the effort. Thank you. In the UK, Dementia Action Week in 2021 takes place from the 17th to the 23rd of May. I hope you'll join me in sharing your research and doing what you can to raise awareness during that time. Our next blog is back to Dr. Emily Oliver, who you met yesterday. Emily has kindly agreed to write for us every month, sharing her work as a dementia consultant nurse for Dementia UK, also reflecting back on the PhD study she did at Southampton. Today, she's introducing herself. Hello, welcome to my blog series. Every month, I'll be sharing updates about dementia and dementia care, whilst providing snippets into my own personal and professional life. 
I thought I would start this blog series with an introduction. My name is Emily Oliver and I'm a mental health nurse currently working as a consultant admiral nurse for Dementia UK. I am passionate about dementia care, particularly in acute hospitals, and am particularly interested in how to improve work systems to facilitate good care. My career so far. So where to start? I am currently 27, so my career has been relatively short. However, I am one of those people who doesn't tend to sit still and as a result have managed to fit quite a lot in. I will start in 2011 when I started university as I'm sure most of you aren't interested in what I studied at GCSE and A-level. Although for those who are, biology, health and social care, English and history. In 2011, I made the decision to start the journey of mental health nursing. Prior to this, I actually wanted to be a midwife and intended many university open days with this intention. However, after hearing a story from a mental health lecturer about accidentally eating a pot brownie on a visit, I was converted. Read of that what you will. Jokes aside, I chose mental health nursing because I wanted the opportunity to provide care to people who needed it most. Even at 18, I was no stranger to the growing concern around mental health with diagnosis rates increasing and services reducing, and I thought it was a career which provided many different opportunities across a range of specialisms. A whirlwind three years in Southampton and six placements later, I was ready to submit my dissertation and graduate with a sudden panic of what next? As all newly qualified nurses did, I applied for a range of jobs. However, it wasn't actually direct clinical work, which I felt was my calling. Our last year of undergraduate nursing involved writing a dissertation about an audit and I chose to explore the use of antipsychotics in dementia care. I found so much enjoyment in searching and reading through the literature and designing an audit that had the potential to make a difference to practice at a strategic level. I discussed this with my tutor at the time and she suggested that I thought about research as a career. A few weeks of reading up on academic nursing careers and an open evening later, I was applying for an NIHR clinical academic doctorate at the University of Southampton. I won't go into too much detail here about the Clinical Academic Fellowship as feel this could be a range of blog posts in itself. But to cut a very long story short, my PhD explored the work system of acute hospitals and its impact on nursing staff's capacity for high quality dementia care. It was a qualitative ethnographic study consisting of observations, interviews and thematic analysis. I learnt so much during the four years of my PhD, both clinically and academically, was given so many opportunities and I definitely don't think I would be in the job I am today without it, so I would highly recommend to anyone thinking of doing it. As I said, I will write more about this in future blog posts, so watch this space. What do I do now? Six years since I started my PhD and I'm now working as a consultant admiral nurse for the national charity Dementia UK. In this role, I support specialist dementia nurses, known as admiral nurses, to set up and sustain relationship-centred dementia services across a range of settings in the southwest of England and south and west Wales. Within this job, I also deliver training, provide supervision to nurses, sit on expert research panels, contribute to research and write for publication. I am also a member of my local ethics committee in which I review research proposals and was recently awarded a Florence Nightingale Travel Scholarship in which I will be travelling to Denmark to learn more about their dementia-friendly hospital proposal. More blogs to come on this. So what next? As many clinical academic students in healthcare, I am always thinking about what is next. And the truth is, I don't know. 
I absolutely love my job and feel like I have enough on my plate, but as ever, I will continue to scope new opportunities, continue to learn about dementia and dementia care, continue to be involved in research, and from now, continue to update you with blog posts. P.S. I do have a life outside of work, although that probably isn't why you're here, but just so you know a bit about my personal life, my hobbies include surfing, running, country walks, cooking, shopping and a bit of gardening. Emily does really fantastic work and we're really excited and happy to have her on board as a regular blogger. Next, we're back to Morgan Daniel discussing the move from Glasgow to London. Hi again. I'm back and since my last blog, I've now settled into London and started working towards my degree. Moving to London was a daunting task, but after many tearful goodbyes and thanks to the help of my mum and a few large suitcases, I eventually made it to the Big Smoke. Having travelled by train, I arrived into King's Cross, and after dodging the many commuters and Harry Potter fans, my accommodation was only a short walk away. In our case, this was a taxi journey. Gyms being closed did nothing for my ability to carry such heavy suitcases. I arrived in London around a month before my course started, so I have had plenty of time to settle in and find my feet in my new city. Finding accommodation in London will naturally worry most students. While rent in London is generally very expensive, there's a lot of choice, and if you search enough, you're bound to find something that suits your needs. I'm lucky enough to have secured a job as a resident advisor with the University of London in student halls. This means that my rent is massively subsidised and is now extremely affordable despite living in such a central location. Living in Bloomsbury is extremely convenient for most university campuses in London. I'm a five minute walk from most UCL buildings and only a two minute walk from Queen's Square where I'll be studying this year. I couldn't have asked for a better location and the relative peace that comes with living in Bloomsbury is a blessing in such a busy city. I've tried to explore as much of London as possible during my time here so far, but as it turns out, there's a lot to see. I think that's one of the best things about London. There's always something to do or see, and there's something to fit everyone's interests. Living in the city during a global pandemic is not the London that most people will be used to, but having moved from Glasgow, much smaller and quieter, it's definitely helped the transition. I'm looking forward to seeing London at its best once restrictions ease and life takes on a new sense of normal. But for now, the peace is okay with me. Of course, it hasn't all been easy. As with any move, there was lots of life admin to sort out, doctors and dentists to register with, and for a while, Google Maps was my best friend every time I left my accommodation. I also struggled with homesickness at first. Being so close with my family, I knew I would struggle to say goodbye, and that living so far away would take some time and would take some getting used to. But having spent months together during lockdown, this move was even harder. Thankfully, I met some lovely people in London, and I've kept myself busy enough that I eventually got used to the 450 mile distance from home. Now that my course has started and I'm busy working away, it's definitely become easier. So far, London has been better than expected, considering I've moved at the beginning of a significant second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm surrounded by green space, I have lovely friends, and I'm finally starting as a student on my dream master's degree. I'm very thankful to be here, and I cannot wait to see what the rest of the year has in store for me. Stay safe, and be sure to tune into my blog next month, where I'll be talking about finally getting started on the Master of Science in Dementia, Neuroscience. I will also be doing a Twitter takeover on the 20th of October to show you what a day in the life of a master's student looks like at UCL. So please check it out, and feel free to ask any questions over Twitter on the day. 
Thanks for reading, and I'll catch you on the next blog. Morgan. For our next blog, we go to Dr. Clarissa Glebel. You'll recall from yesterday, Clarissa is a postdoctoral researcher in Liverpool. Today, she's going to be discussing using routine data for dementia research. In the UK, we're really fortunate to have lots of fantastic data, and researchers have free and open access to that resource to perform their work. Using routine data for dementia research. When I first started my job, a long time ago it seems, and then my PhD, ditto, I collected new data, so primary data. I interviewed people living with dementia, carers and health and social care professionals, and ran neuropsychological test batteries with people living with dementia. That ranged from asking them to remember different types of doors and people, to remembering different length of digits. Only later on in my jobs at UEA, and now particularly at the University of Liverpool, I've become very much used to use what already exists. Genius, isn't it? Saves a lot of data collection time. Obviously, we can't just rely on existing databases and routinely collected data. We equally need to research issues newly. But for many larger scale understandings, such as how often people go to hospital and why, or how many people get a diagnosis of dementia and enter a care home, to be very simplistic, we can utilize routine or cohort data. Cohorts like the English Longitudinal Study of Aging, or ELSA, have been specifically designed to collect specific types of information on a regular basis from the same participants. This allows to recognize trends and changes over time. The only downside can be the costs and staffing involved in ensuring that data can be collected on a regular basis, which is why it's not so easy to set up effective cohorts. Plus, many participants might not wish to continue at some point. Routine data, such as the hospital episode statistics, or HES, collect data automatically, anonymously, and provide a great insight into, in this case, hospital usage. James Watson, fellow dementia researcher blogger, actually looked into how much routine and cohort data sets are utilized in dementia research, specifically when looking at inequalities in care. In his PhD systematic review, he found numerous different databases which have been used across the globe to explore how people with dementia access anti-dementia medication, for example, or enter a care home. Now imagine you can merge different routine data sets together to create some sort of mega data set. Sounds great, doesn't it? And totally possible. One way of doing that is via the SAIL data bank, secure anonymized data linkage. The SAIL data bank offers the opportunity to link together routinely collected data in Wales, such as how often people see their GPs, to where they live, and whether they have a dementia diagnosis. So I work together with colleagues at Swansea and Edinburgh in using a specific care home database when people have entered a care home and a database created by Edinburgh on dementia diagnosis. We explored whether where people live, rural or urban, and whether their socioeconomic background, living in more or less dis disadvantaged neighbourhoods, is associated with a time to care home entry in dementia across Wales. Considering you have data from across Wales at your laptop keyboard fingertips, there are a lot of data you have to manage and sift through and ensure you have the correct data selection rules. For example, by linking all these different databases together, 
we found that apparently some people received the dementia diagnosis within their first year of life. Clearly, this was a glitch in the system in terms of data entry, but that meant we had to check through the data and ensure these cases, for example, were excluded. Not such a big deal, though, as we still included nearly 35,000 people living with dementia who had entered a care home in Wales between 2000 and 2018. That's another benefit of using linked routine data, the power you get from those large numbers. After a lot of managing the data, running the analysis seems more or less straightforward. In particular, we showed that living in more disadvantaged neighbourhoods and in rural regions is associated with a slower rate of care home entry. So people took longer to enter a care home. People with dementia who lived alone, were older and more frail, entered a care home faster. As I said, routine and cohort data can't answer all of our questions, but it's definitely a great way to complement your research. If you know where to look, there are so many fantastic data sets out there that are able to support your work. Visit our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and navigate along to the essential tools section where you'll find listings of all the datasets we're aware of that might be available to you. They're usually free and fairly easy to access. Our next blog comes from Dr Anna Volkmer. She's a speech and language therapy researcher at University College London. She's discussing the measure of COVID-19 on loneliness in dementia. The measure of COVID-19 on loneliness in dementia. Some of the most powerful outcomes of therapy when working with people with dementia and their families have been their comments on the impact of therapy, often given as throwaway comments towards the end of a therapy session. One memorable moment was a wife telling me quite seriously that she was planning to divorce her husband until I made her realise that he hadn't become the selfish man she thought, but that his language impairment made it feel that way sometimes. Once she understood how to communicate with him, their relationship improved. Another was from a husband who told me I'd helped him see that he was the foundation for communication now. He felt he needed the skills to underpin and scaffold interaction and with my help he'd realised he had the skills and he could do it. This week someone told me I'd helped him get humour back into his relationship with his wife. Yet somehow, I don't feel the research outcomes that we use have captured this to date. We measure language on formal tests and collect discourse samples or picture descriptions. The rating scales I use in my studies ask people and their partners to rate domains of quality of life on a numerical scale. They are asked to rate their confidence in going to the bank and watching television. They may be asked about the impact of their difficulties, as well as the burden and the stress of their difficulties. Often these don't seem directly related to what we worked on, nor their actual lives. There are many things that affect confidence and increase the daily burden of living with somebody with dementia. But do these measures really prove that therapy does or does not work? Perhaps it is the way we use the measures rather than the measure itself. The holy grail of intervention research is the randomised controlled trial. Yet the qualitative feedback I describe is not considered rigor enough, rigorous enough to warrant use as a measure on such a trial. 
single case studies or group studies followed by focus groups are considered more suitable for complex intervention research. And, you know, I'm inclined to agree. Despite this, many of the studies, these particular studies, may not be considered systematic enough or thorough enough or unbiased enough. Thus, they do not have the same influence on standards of care and guidelines for practice, nor on commissioners. This is incredibly frustrating. There is no doubt that social interaction provides a quality of life worth living for, and the speech and language therapy interventions that we develop and deliver are an important and valuable component of maintaining this interaction, especially for those with language-led dementias or with language and communication as a secondary symptom of dementia. In other words, many people with dementia. The recent evidence from the COVID-19 pandemic only underlines this. Not only are there more people with dementia contracting and dying of the virus, but the impact has meant that people with dementia are isolated from cognitive stimulation and interaction with their loved ones. The Alzheimer's Society reports indicate that this isolation is resulting in a cognitive deterioration and increased mortality. This has been observed both where people are living in nursing or residential facilities or even at home. And one of my colleagues described it as though her patients were dying of loneliness. Perhaps it is therefore not ethical to properly measure the impact of social and interactional interventions in dementia. To deny one arm of a trial this type of interaction and intervention and yet deliver it in the, in the other might seem particularly unethical. Perhaps the COVID-19 pandemic has actually provided the best randomised controlled trial we could have for those without it have died of loneliness. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Join us again tomorrow where you can hear more blogs. And if you'd like to write your own blogs for Dementia Researcher, do drop us a line using the Contact Us page on our website, dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. And make sure you register to never miss a blog in future. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.